me ask you a question. Would you be willing to write, really write, I mean hundreds of written creations, if you did not know if anyone would ever read them? Would you be willing to labor on your creative endeavors, whether music or art or music, for hours, days, months, years, and never know whether your work would even get noticed? I'm Randy Overbeck, host of Great Stories About Great Storytellers, where I get to share the unknown backstories of well-known authors, directors, and poets. I'm the author of a best-selling and award-winning series, but let me admit up front my answer to the questions I raised would have been no. I could never have labored on my work in quiet solitude. But this storyteller did. This episode features one of the greatest and most original American poets ever, Emily Dickinson. Almost every high school in this country has encountered the work of Emily Dickinson, and as a former English teacher myself, I can tell you this encounter did not always go well. Many teenagers are, are like most of Dickens' contemporaries. They just don't get her work, at least not right away. You see, Dickinson's was so good, so revolutionary, and so far ahead of her time that those who knew her and read her work were really not able to appreciate her genius. Emily Elizabeth Dickinson, 1830-1886, was born into a prominent upper-class New England family. Her father, even a state representative and senator, as well as a U.S. congressman. In fact, her grandfather was one of the founders of Amherst College. The time and society in which she lived had very definite expectations for the roles women were allowed to play. According to the mores at the time, women were expected to marry and support their husband, take care of the household, the house, and the grounds. The idea that women would partake in men's activities was unthinkable for this society. In some ways, young Emily Dickinson thrived in this society. She was close to her family, mother, father, sister Lavinia, and brother Austin. As a teen, she enjoyed hosting parties, soirees, and get-togethers where the youths would play parlor games. Also, this stay-at-home life gave Emily ample time to read, one of the intellectual pursuits available to women, and she made full use of it. She read the Bible, Shakespeare, the works of Charles Darwin, the poetry of M Elizabeth Barrett Browning and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, as well as the writings of Ralph Waldo Anderson, Henry David Thoreau, Charlotte Bronte, and Nathaniel Hawthorne. All these immersions must have fueled her literary imagination with few outlets available to her. One outlet available to her was the writing of letters, and Emily Dickinson took to this role as if made for it. During this time, letter writing became the primary means of communicating and connecting with others, as most people did limited traveling, as was true with the Dickinson family. Although we have no idea how many letters Dickinson sent, she sent 300 letters to her sister-in-law and confidant, Susan Gilbert Dickinson, alone. Experts believe the numbers approaches a thousand, and a surprising number of these letters have been preserved. 
from the earliest letters, elements of her gift with words are quite evident. One other creative outlet available to women at the time was gardening, and Emily proved herself to be quite the botanist. In and around their homestead, she planted hundreds of trees and flowers and even maintained a greenhouse along with her sister Lavinia. She assembled a 66-page leather-bound herbarium containing 424 pressed flower specimens that she collected, classified, and labeled. According to friends and family, the household boasted lilies of the valley, pansies, sweet peas, daffodils, peonies, and marigolds, a butterfly utopia. These excursions into nature inspired many a poetic effort on Emily's part. Emily would often send bunches of flowers with a verse to her friends. <laughs> According to family lore, many friends kept the flowers and tossed the poetry. <laughs> what an incredible loss to them, to Emily, and now to posterity. After she reached the tender age of 25, though, Emily Dickinson became more fastidious and reclusive, preferring to stay at home or close to home and write. This is when she began an intense letter-writing relationship with a small number of correspondents, especially Susan Gilbert. Thankfully for us, Emily was fortunate to have been born into a family with means, as it provided her with the perfect environment for her to explore her writing talent, if only in secret, her own room. Although she shared some of her work with a few friends and had seven poems published in the Sp Springfield Republic, most of the time Emily labored on her writing alone, in obscurity and little noticed. This ignorance, and some would say abandonment by the outside world, which would include her family, by the way, was revealed after Emily's death. After she died, Lavinia was cleaning out her sister's room and discovered 40 hand-bound volumes containing more than 1,800 poems copied carefully onto stationary papers that had been sewn together. Today, we can only imagine Lavinia's stunned reaction as she pulled out volume after volume and sat in that small room reading the poems her sister had written, rewritten, and revised, and placed on the page. We can almost picture the woman, Lavinia would have been 53 at the time, still sobbing from the funeral and loss of her sister, sorting through the paraphernalia left behind to death, correspondence, clothes, handkerchiefs, mementos, and then stumbling upon the cachet of poems. Then she probably sat down and read aloud a few like these. Success is counted sweetest by those who ne'er succeed. To comprehend a nectar requires sorest need. Not one of all the purple hosts who took the flag today can tell the definition of so clear a victory as he, dying, on whose forbidden ear the distant strains of triumph burst agonized and clear. Or maybe this one. This is my letter to the world that never wrote to me. The simple news that nature told with tender majesty. Her message is committed to hands I cannot see. 
for love of her, sweet countrymen, judge tenderly of me. In incisive and evocative language, Dickens poem, Dickinson's poems portray the story of stories of life and death, of love pined for and lost, of nature's gifts, and of human foibles. Her poetry carries tales of escape and of freedom, of marriage and of wife, of birth and of shroud. In, in many ways, Emily Dickinson should never have been a famous writer. She never traveled far from home, making only a few trips in her whole life to Philadelphia, Washington, and Springfield, Massachusetts. Throughout her life, she received little support or training or even encouragement in her vocation. She was well-educated at Amherst Academy and Mount Holyoke College, but was frustrated that society wouldn't let her and other women of her time do much with this learning. Medical experts of today believe she suffered from such ailments as agoraphobia, depression, and anxiety. She also endured a painful ailment of her eyes, which was threatening to blind her. <laughs> and the medical advice at the time, stop using your eyes to write. She never married or had children, though she definitely was in love. From her 30, she took on the full-time responsibility of caring for her ailing mother for decades. None of this looked to be any kind of launching pad for a great, Amer great American writer. In spite of all this, Emily Dickinson is regarded as one of the preeminent American poets. Her work still read today, more than 150 years later. When the first volume of her poetry was finally published, four years after her death, it met with stunning success, going through 11 editions in only two years. Since then, collections of her work have received critical and popular acclaim decade after decade. Even recently, there have been a resurgence of interest in the person and poet, as evidenced in the popular series Dickinson on Apple TV. There is little doubt she left her mark on our culture as a great storyteller, though perhaps one who told stories a bit differently. After a word from this episode's sponsor, I'll share a few of the lessons we can all glean from the unique life and talent of Emily Dickinson. Susan Wingate, a number one Amazon best-selling author, holds a Master's of Fine Arts in Creative Writing. Her poetry, short stories, and essays have been published in journals such as the Superstitious Review and Suspense Magazine. Her novel, How the Dear Moon Hungers, has earned eight awards. Her newest novel, Hotter Than Helen, a new romantic suspense, is available wherever you buy great reads. Susan Wingate writes about big trouble in small towns and lives with her, with her husband on an island in Washington State. Check her out at www.susanwingate.com. Now, back to the great story of Emily Dickinson. In answer to the question I opened the episode with, Mrs. Dickinson's accomplished all that and so much more. There is so much writers and others can learn from her legacy but, and her life, but here are a few takeaways. 
vision, even though her culture and society would not permit it, and she received little support from an early age, Emily Dickinson had the vision of herself as a poet. It didn't matter that others doubted her, that contemporaries didn't get her, that her society could not conceive of her as a woman, as a woman poet. None of these obstacles altered her vision. Emily saw herself as a poet and kept focused on that vision her entire life. Perseverance. At the outset, I shared I could never have done what Dickinson accomplished. I could never have languished in obscurity for decades, hoping maybe sometime someone would take notice of my work. The fact that she was able to ignore the critics and her family and friends and persevere under these conditions should be a lesson for all. I don't know anyone whose obstacles are as high and as formidable as Emily faced. With all that she accomplished, we should be able to go on. Diligence. One of the most common shortcomings I see in writers today is they want to get there now. Far too many throw out their work long before it has been revised, reviews, and edited to make it the very best it can be. We know from the artifacts that survive that Emily Dickinson wrote and rewrote and revised and reviewed her poems, even though she had no assurance anyone's other eyes would ever see them. She wanted to make sure that if and when the world got to witness her creations, she gave them the very best she could. We, as writers, should do no less. At least this last quality, a stick to itness, I can honestly relate to. A few years ago, a journalist, and an inspiring writer, by the way, mentioned how impressed she was with the first chapter of Blood on the Chesapeake, the first entry in the Haunted Shore Mysteries. She was stunned when I explained that the opening chapter of the novel was actually the 15th version of that first chapter. Like Dickinson, I wrote and rewrote, revised and revised, until I had the best first chapter I could offer. Now, I'm certainly no Emily Dickinson, but I think it worked, as the book has won three awards, three national awards, and become a bestseller. If you'd like to check out this first chapter or any of the series, you can find them at my website, www.authorrandyoverbeck.com. There you'll also find a link for all the episodes of this podcast, or you can catch them wherever you get your podcasts. Speaking of which, check in next month when I will share the backstory of the popular British author of thrillers and historical fiction, Ken Follett. Until then, keep reading those great stories, and I hope one of them is mine.